This is an ABC podcast. They've just opened the newly revamped International Spy Museum in Washington. There are more spies operating in the US today than at any point in our history. Spying is more important today than at any point in our history. The objective of spies has never changed. The only thing that changes is the technology that they use to accomplish it. And the technology that's used to try and stop them. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense on ABC RN. The challenges facing modern espionage and threatening our democratic future. That's our topic today. We're an educational institution first and foremost, and I think that people look at espionage and go, well, educational about what? Well, if you took the front page of any major newspaper around the world in the last 15 years, there's probably a story on the front page about something intelligence-related, whether it's drones or torture or the war on terror or Russian influence in elections or what's going on, even things like climate change. Climate change is, is closely monitored by intelligence agencies. And we want to put the public in a position to where they can be much more educated when they're dealing with subjects like this, because most universities, most high schools don't teach intelligence in school. Dr. Vince Houghton, historian and International Spy Museum curator. So we're, we're a dam unlike others. So we think of a natural history museum. Most of us learn as a kid about dinosaurs or about different geology or, or a, a history museum you know, take a class on American history here in the United States. So those are museums that you go into and have the foundation already. We, on the other hand, most of the public's only introduction to intelligence are spy movies or spy fiction, which I'm sorry to say are complete and utter nonsense. And so not only do our visitors have no real background in intelligence, they have a bad, an incorrect, a false background in intelligence. And so we see ourselves as a way to make the visitor, regardless of where they're from, a more educated consumer of what's going on around them. Because the spy business is in a period of rapid transition. Even in an era of artificial intelligence, you need human intelligence. In fact, it will become even more important. Ironically, the most profound consequence of the technological challenge is a human one. We are determined, of course, to attract people with an even higher level of technical skill to join our ranks. But my organisation will need to adapt even... Alex Younger, the head of Britain's Secret Intelligence Service. He may be seeking to recruit more technical experts, but whether MI6 or indeed any other intelligence agency will need more field officers in the future is another matter entirely. On-the-ground agents have long been the foot soldiers of espionage, but things are rapidly changing. Edward Lucas is a columnist for the London Times and an intelligence and security policy expert. The absolute basis of human espionage is deception about identity. It's the key thing about a spy is that you don't know that he or she is a spy. And technology is making that deception much more difficult because we have databases that can store and search pictures of faces. And we have electronic tracking beacons called mobile phones, which we carry around with us. And if we don't carry them, that's suspicious as well. And then there's a raft of other information on 
payments and things like that, credit ratings and so on. So there's a kind of invisible digital persona behind us. And someone without that persona is like a, a man without a shadow. And so this makes life a great deal easier for spy catchers, for counterintelligence people, particularly in authoritarian countries like China and Russia. There are ways of getting around this, but they are expensive and risky and, and not ideal. And if you look back to the old sort of James Bond films, when Bond goes off on a mission, he's given some traveller's checks and a passport and an air ticket and off he goes. And that's that. And that kind of low friction espionage is now very difficult. One way round is to use very young spies. People are just out of university and you've had a chance to train them perhaps with no one looking. And so all you really know is this is a recent graduate. And that can be okay for sort of what they call errand running, you know, emptying a dead letterbox or something like that. But you, those people probably only have one or two shots at missions and then you know, they're going to become known to the authorities on the other side. Another opportunity is, is you can use people under very deep natural cover, what the Americans call natural capacity, where someone really is a, a businessman or a homemaker or something, but they're living in a foreign country under completely legitimate identity. And that gives them a bit more opportunity to move around. But even then, patterns of behaviour soon become identifiable and, and suspicious. A third is, uh, option is just not to do espionage in hostile territory and you wait till the person you want to meet is outside China or Russia or Iran or whatever. But even that's getting difficult because the Chinese are developing a kind of global surveillance capability where they're able to see pretty clearly what's happening even in, in other countries as well as just in China. So the personal risks for an on-the-ground spy, I mean, they will increase enormously, won't they, in that kind of environment? Yes, I mean, it's more risk to the mission and to the organisation than to the, the the person, I guess, because most times when spies get caught, they, I mean, if you're talking about intelligence officers, people actually work for a government agency, then probably they'd be under, in the old days, they'd have been undercover as a, as a diplomat at an embassy, and if they get caught, well, they get booted out and can't go back to that country again. So there are sort of rules to the, at that end. The more difficult thing, I think, is the people they recruit, and of course we saw this thing in China, a fuse back where the entire CIA network in China was rolled up and they were all executed, often in pretty brutal manner. So the, the people who are really at risk are not so much the intelligence officers themselves, but the sources they're recruiting. When I was on active duty, I could travel internationally, I could go through airport control and with false documentation and a board passport clerk or customs clerk would kind of take a quick look at me and then stamp my passport and I'm in the country. Now, even small third world countries have access to scanners and databases. Yeah, it's killing us. It's killing us. It's awful. James Olson, former chief of counterintelligence for the CIA. I wouldn't be opposed to parachuting more people in for short missions where it's less likely that they would get attention from local service. And, of course, one real big factor in all of that is what their cover is. And so we've got to be more imaginative, more creative, more devious in the kinds of covers we choose so that we have people on the ground capable of operating, trained to operate with missions to perform who are less likely to attract attention. So if your cover is diplomatic, forget it. You're going to be watched. Now, the downside of that, of course, is that they don't have diplomatic immunity, and if they get caught, uh, they're going to jail. So that's a little spice to their life, but it does increase the chances that they're going to be operate without being covered by a, a surveillance team. Go to jail or worse, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, jail, go to jail or worse. 
Professor Olson now teaches at the Bush School of Government and Public Service in Texas, and he's just released a book called To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. When he looks ahead, he sees a lot to fear. I don't think we've dropped the ball. I think that the professionals in the Western countries are aware of what's going on. But the truth is we're being overwhelmed, and none of us have the resources that match the, the nature of the, the threat we're getting from just China alone. Then if you throw in Russia and Cuba and Iran and the other bad actors, you've got a very, very big challenge. So they're getting away with it, and the truth is that they can pretty much operate with impunity. And we make some hits here and there and bring some of their operations down, but I think it's just a drop in the bucket, and I think what they are doing that has not been detected is probably far, far beyond what we even fear. If you imagine if you're in Australia or Britain or somewhere and you want to put together the phone records, um, you want CCTV, you want to take the CCTV images, feed them into a computer, identify each face, then match that up with bank records, add in where people, which hotels people have stayed in. Now, you can do that, but you're going to need a series of warrants and explained at a pretty high level to politicians and other sort of you know, regulators and supervisors why you're doing this. And it, it would be a, it's not a matter of just pushing a button. So we can do this, but we can only really do it after the event. So we saw that in Salisbury, where we had this nerve agent poisoning, and we were able to put together all sorts of different databases and in the end work out who the Russians were who tried to kill this guy in, in Salisbury. But we can't do that into real time, and, and we don't do it just to spot patterns. Whereas in an authoritarian society, you can just say, I want to see every foreigner who arrives here without a mobile, every foreigner who arrives with a burner phone, every foreigner who arrives here without a credit rating, you know, everyone who's using a prepaid debit card. You, know, you can just do these sort of instant searches and, and do them without any sort of warrant or legislative or um, judicial scrutiny. So that difference is enormously significant, isn't it, for our effectiveness with regard to espionage? Yes, I think it it turns the tables a bit, and it means that we are much less. It's much. It, it was always difficult spying in a closed society, but we had ways around it. But this, you know, the inability to walk down the street without being noticed, is is the fundamental problem. In, in the old days, you could you know, be the Australian third councillor for trade or something at the embassy in Moscow or Beijing, and then in the evening, you'd slip out and do a bit of spying and maybe you know, meet an agent you were cultivating or running or um, empty a dead letter box or do whatever was needed to be done. And as far as the authorities were concerned, you were just another anonymous person on the streets of, of the city. And unless they were actually following you all the time, and you'd, you'd have a probably pretty good idea if they were following you as a trained intelligence officer, there wasn't very much they could do about it. And now you know, your details are fed into the central computer. And whenever you walk out of the front door, CCTV ca camera catches your face and your every movement is tracked. And if you even escape that scrutiny, your mobile phone is... Uh, saying this chap's at home and the video is saying you're out outdoors and that suggests that you're probably up to no good. So there's all sorts of different difficulties that technology has created for us. Edward Lucas. James Olsen believes in going forward, Western spy agencies need to be much more proactive to seize the initiative. Counterintelligence commandment number one is be offensive and that basically boils down to two things that all of us need to do a better job of. The first prong of being offensive is penetration. 
penetration is the best form of counterintelligence. We need to recruit, we need to penetrate foreign intelligence services and find those people who are aware of who our spies are. Uh, that's the, the best way to uncover spies. And then the second prong of offensive counterintelligence is double agent operations. And I'm afraid to say that in the Five Eyes community that it is an underutilized methodology. The double agent operations are powerful. I would like to be flooding the hostile services and particularly China with uh, double agents. And I'd like to see the entire community do that, to flush them out, to have them expose their requirements, expose their officers, expose their trade craft. I call double agent operations the caviar of the intelligence profession because in my experience there's nothing juicier or more delectable than a good double agent operation. I'd like to see a lot more of them. We're not doing enough. We're not putting enough resources into it. We're not giving enough priority. I think our political leaders are not as vocal as they should be in standing up for defending our technologies and our secrets. Now, you mentioned political leaders there. Recently, the former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, denigrated Australia's intelligence chiefs, calling them nutters, anti-China nutters, because he, he thought they were overly concerned about the Chinese Communist Party and its activities. He actually is a special advisor to the, the China Development Bank. We've also seen President Trump appearing to take the side of dictators in authoritarian countries and seeming to talk down American intelligence agencies. How difficult are those kinds of statements and pronouncements from those sorts of people? Well, I think that they're demoralising. I think they undermine our motivation and our ability. I saw what you did refer to in Australia, and I, I regretted that. And, of course, I'm very unhappy that our president, President Trump, has seemed to single the intelligence community out for a lot of attacks. He's kind of maligned our product and our people, and that's discouraging. But I think whether in Australia or in the United States, that we professionals have a lot of pride and love of country, and I think we're going to accomplish our mission even though we're being criticized. Being intelligent is not going to win you any popularity contest. But we believe in what we're doing, and uh, we're going to carry on. I, I send a lot of my students in the intelligence community in the United States, and I tell them, just stay mission-focused. Why do you think uh, we're seeing those kind of comments? I mean, they would have, not too long ago, they would have been unthinkable from Western leaders. Yes. Well, I don't know. I think, thinking of the United States, that maybe the president is getting intelligence that he, he doesn't want to hear, he doesn't agree with. And so I think uh, he simply says, uh, go back to the drawing boards, do it over again, come back with the right answer. That's unfortunate because we're doing as, as best we can. We've got the resources, we've got the expertise, and uh, we've got really good analysis. And I think our product has withstood the test of time. Uh, and it is, it is uh, unfortunate when our intelligence product is rejected. And I think intelligence professionals everywhere Back in 2017, former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder was forced to defend himself against critics, including Angela Merkel 
who questioned why he had accepted a senior position with the Russian oil company Rosneft. But many former Western politicians, including former cabinet ministers, now have paid or advisory positions with Chinese as well as Russian companies. Edward Lucas. I think these companies, which are in effect countries that are absolutely against our, our national security and our national interest, whether it's you know, the, the Russian oligarchs or the Chinese Communist Party, are buying influence and buying respectability in our societies. And one of the ways they do that is put people on the payroll who have supposedly got good reputations. And one of the things that they then want to do is to push back against any warnings that come, whether it's from academia or from journalists like me or from the intelligence services, and poo-poo those warnings. And so that the, the, these people, these uh, sort of former elite people, are a kind of first line of defence for the Russians and Chinese against criticism, and they and that's what they're paid for. And I think it's I think it's disgraceful, and. I think it's also true that the intelligence services have been in the forefront of warning about this threat and were warning many years ago when other people weren't listening. And um, I hope they continue to warn and that those warnings will be listened to. But I think that we we need to have um, tougher conflict of interest laws regarding senior officials. And I think also social stigma. I think that it should be seen as not just a career killing, but a sort of absolute social disgrace to go and work for one of these companies. And um, that's in the gift of each and every one of us to make our own feelings clear if we meet people who do that. On RN, you're listening to Future Tense and an examination of some of the challenges facing modern espionage and threatening our democratic future. I'm Anthony Fennell. A blessing and a curse for Western intelligence has been the emergence of what's called the open source intelligence community. The use of readily available satellite imagery means oppressive regimes can no longer hide their secret facilities the way they once did so easily. The flip side, of course, and the challenge, is that everything is now much more visible from the sky. Mac Corder is with the Federation of American Scientists, an organisation that says it uses scientific technology to try and make the world a safer place. There are a ton of organisations in the United States alone, but really kind of all over the world, that are working on this kind of thing. So what we do at the Federation of American Scientists, and in particular in the Nuclear Information Project, which is the project that I work on, We trawl around the globe using satellite imagery to provide the most accurate assessments of global nuclear forces. And so these are numbers that are generally quite classified. You know, governments don't really release the exact numbers of nuclear weapons or missiles that they have or where they are. And so it's our job to go and look around the world and find them. And then we put those numbers out into the public and sort of try and enrich the public debate. So your motivation is to stop governments from uh, being misleading about the number of nuclear weapons that they have. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. And so there's, you know, several different parts of FAS that contribute to that mission. So we have our project, I mentioned the Nuclear Information Project, where we're looking a lot at satellite imagery. And then there's the other side of it, which is the Government Secrecy Project. Both projects together, we submit a lot of requests for freedom of information and sort of try and inquire within the government, mostly in the United States, to try and get them to release a little bit more of their data or try and uh, get them to uncensor things that really don't need to be censored. And it might seem obvious, but let's make the point that no government, that no government including the United States, would want that kind of information out there, really, would they? Oh, yeah, not at all. 
I get introduced to sitting government officials as the enemy sometimes, which sometimes <laughs> I think means that I'm doing something right. How easy is it to find secret military facilities? So just using Google Earth alone, um, you can find an incredible amount of data on how different governments are positioning their forces, what they're building. There's also a ton of different mapping platforms that provide different types of satellite imagery, right? So you have a company called Planet Labs that's just sort of started up in the past decade or so. And their mission is to sort of create a daily picture of the Earth. And so they have sent up a ton of these really small satellites that they call CubeSats. And they're kind of the size of a, of a lunchbox. And they send those up all the time. And they take daily images of the Earth at a resolution that's slightly lower than what you would find on Google Earth. And so you can use those two platforms, and then there's a ton of other platforms as well that are helpful with this, to look at different places around the world. You can get a sense of what's being constructed, right? So Planet Labs is really useful for looking at how sites are changing daily, whereas Google Earth, which gets satellite imagery from places like Digital Globe and, and Airbus, they have really detailed satellite imagery. So you can really go and zoom in quite deep into specific sites. So it's actually, it's really easy for just regular people to go in and see how the world around them is changing and how it's changing in lots of different countries as well. A few months ago, we published a story about how Russia is expanding and upgrading some of its nuclear weapons storage facilities, you know, ones that have been kind of dormant for years and are kind of being revamped at the moment, which is really interesting. Now, in terms of espionage, the system as you describe it is a benefit, isn't it, for many countries, say for the United States. It allows them to look at what the Russians and others are doing, uh, but it also puts their facilities at risk as well, doesn't it? So it's a bit of a, a, a double-edged sword, really. Yeah, very much. It's really interesting because because it sort of opens up to you know, to pretty much anyone with an internet connection, it sort of means that governments are going to have to learn how to adapt in this new kind of environment, right? Because they are entering a situation in which regular people can have access to aerial footage of pretty much anything in the world. And so you sort of have to design your security with that in mind. So how have governments and intelligence agencies across the world, how have they responded to this? How have they tried to minimize the impact on their facilities? At the moment, most governments have responded by trying to essentially censor different mapping platforms and satellite imagery providers. And so there are a ton of different countries that ask companies like Google Earth or Yandex to you know, blur out particular sites or just remove them entirely from the map. And so, you know, the story that I wrote about specifically mentions Israel and Turkey, but this is kind of going on all over the globe. France has asked Google Maps to blur out all of its prisons after there was kind of this high profile prison escape in 2018. And Belgium is actually suing Google for not blurring out more of its military facilities quick enough. So there are a lot of ways in which governments are trying to minimize the impact that readily available satellite imagery is having to their own security. But it seems to me like at the moment, these are kind of band-aid solutions or kind of the last gasp of governments trying to maintain this element of secrecy over satellite imagery in a world where satellite imagery is just increasingly becoming more and more freely available. So if you were actually looking at satellite images and you came across an area that was blurred, 
you immediately know, you may not be able to tell what is there accurately, but you know then that that is a, a military facility. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So if you want to get a satellite imagery analyst to become insanely curious about something, just blur it out. A blessing and a curse, as I said earlier. Matt Corder from the Federation of American Scientists. Right at the beginning of this program, we met Vince Houghton, the curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington. His specific area of interest in recent times has been looking back at highly speculative American intelligence projects that were approved but never implemented. Many of them now seem fanciful, outrageous or even absurd, like strapping incendiary devices onto the backs of fruit bats to firebomb a city or even setting off a thermonuclear device on the moon in order to warn off the Soviet Union. He's detailed them in a newly released book. Technological innovation, says Dr Houghton, is and needs to remain an essential part of espionage and intelligence work. And it has to, at times, be both unsettling and confronting. Most of the problems that get down to the level of the intelligence agencies are very, very difficult, if not impossible, right? If there were easy problems, they would have been solved by somebody else. They would have been solved by the diplomats or they have been solved by the conventional military. When a problem lands on the desk of the CIA, of the technology guys that we call the Office of Technical Services, the technology people at CIA, is a problem that a lot of other people have tried to solve and haven't been able to. So this is really where you have to start thinking more innovatively than you have otherwise, more creatively than you might have otherwise, because these are problems that in many cases can't be solved. But if you have the cutting edge in technology, if you're looking forward, if you're doing things and work that no one knows about, when we find out about something that's being done by the government, whether it's our government or your government or the British government, anybody else, that means that stuff was developed 10 years ago, at least, if it's been declassified which means they're way ahead of the curve. So they're looking at not only technology that exists today in the civilian world, but technology that they're developing themselves to solve problems that may one day trickle down to us. I mean, the CIA created the first text messaging system back in the 1970s. You know, the United States military built the Internet. You know, the United States military built GPS. And it was being used by the government decades before it was being used by any of us. So the ability to use innovative and new and novel technologies is something that is a long history in the United States military and intelligence agencies. And just picking up on that point, I mean, if we've got this this back history of very creative, some might say, you know, extreme in some cases, extreme measures, that's the back history. Is that an indication that those kind of highly speculative ideas are still being thought of and will be planned into the future? I hope so. I mean, I say that with all sincerity. I, I think that's the job of these intelligence agencies. It's the job of intelligence agencies around the world to be thinking very creatively. It's the job to make sure that our countries aren't surprised by anything that might be out there. You know, and so even, you know, if you think of, like, the American Biological Weapons Program, well, we don't have an offensive biological weapons program. We have a defensive one. Right up the street from Washington, D.C., there's a, a lab that's doing research on biological weapons, not so that we can attack anybody. It's so that we won't get surprised by anybody else. That's really what intelligence agencies are designed to do. They're designed to provide policymakers with information that prevents us from getting surprised. And of course, they fail. 9-11, Pearl Harbor, everything else in between. But the point is for them to not all of a sudden see a technology or innovation that goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. So they better be thinking way outside the box. 
they better be thinking not only about what technologies we might want to use one day, but also what technologies someone might want to use against us someday. So where, you know, the Australian government or the American government may not think of a weapon that does really nasty things to a particular, you know, ethnic group or a particular religion or anything like that. Well, other countries might be. So we better be thinking about it. We better be doing research on it. We better be trying to figure out a way to prevent that from happening. And so my hope is that, yeah, people are still thinking really, really creatively because someone else somewhere in, in Iran or North Korea or ISIS is thinking really creatively about ways to kill Americans or Australians or Brits or anybody else. So we better be one step ahead. Dr Vince Houghton, and his book is called Nuking the Moon. We also heard today from Matt Corder, security policy analyst Edward Lucas, and former CIA counterintelligence chief James Olson. Thanks as always to my co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.